Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today I'm joined by Janice Kwan, who is a general internist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Hey, Janice, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Amol? Really great. It's good to have you back on the show. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on again. Awesome. So today, Janice and I are talking about all sorts of obstetrical medicine. So Janice is going to talk about the CHIPS trial for hypertension and pregnancy. I'm going to talk about the TIPS trial for anticoagulation and thrombophilia in pregnancy. And Janice, I think if we're clever enough, we'll have some quips so that we can call this episode CHIPS, TIPS, and QUIPS. I have nothing funny to say to that. Sorry. (laughs) That's perfect. That's a bad start for us. That's okay. All right. We'll aspire to some quips. So, and then as always, we will wrap up and end with our good stuff segment, which is us bringing you some short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Janice, why don't you kick us off and tell me about the CHIPS trial? Sure. So happy to talk about the CHIPS trial. Uh, It stands for Control of Hypertension in Pregnancy Study, and there is a Canadian connection, as it was led by trialists out of UBC, and uh, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on January 29th, 2015. And basically what they found is that less tight versus tight control of hypertension in pregnancy did not lead to any differences in terms of maternal or fetal complications. Interesting. So what's the background to all of this? Basically, to contextualize the study, and as an internist occasionally looking after obstetrical patients, I often revert back to my medical school days, and I think of the adage that was taught to me during my ob rotation, and that is that one isn't really only looking after one patient, but two, both the mother as well as the fetus. Yeah, and I guess that has a lot of relevance for this paper, right, where Really, it's all about balancing benefits to mom with potential harms to baby. Absolutely, and that's a particular paradigm that was addressed in this paper. We know that hypertension is the most common medical diagnosis encountered in pregnancy. Around 10% of pregnant women are diagnosed with hypertension, and we know that it leads to complications in around 2-3% of pregnancies. So broadly speaking, high blood pressure is classified in pregnant women under the umbrella term of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, and they slot it into three different classifications. So the first is called pre-existing or chronic hypertension, and that's defined as high blood pressure that develops either before pregnancy or before 20 weeks gestational age. The second category is gestational hypertension, which is high blood pressure diagnosed after 20 weeks gestational age. And the third is preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure with proteinuria, which, as you recall, is a disorder felt to be connected to the placenta in some way. Yeah, so that's a helpful review, Janice, because I feel like these definitions change like every five years. Certainly, they've changed since we were in medical school. Um, I I feel like for the better, at least this time around, in the sense that it's a little bit simpler, it's either pre-existing hypertension or it's uh, gestational hypertension, or it's gestational hypertension with end organ dysfunction, which becomes preeclampsia. Yeah, exactly. And for me, simple is always better. <laughs> me too. I agree. So, um, so what's the background sort of context to this study? Why is there any debate over the degree of blood pressure control? Yeah, so for sure, we know that high blood pressure is associated with poor outcomes in both the fetus as well as the mother. 
And there is definite consensus at the international level that there is necessity to treat high blood pressure when it's classified as severe hypertension, which is felt to be associated with high risks such as stroke. And it's defined as a systolic blood pressure greater than 160 and a diastolic blood pressure greater than 110 in the European and Canadian guidelines and greater than 105 in the American guidelines. However, the jury really is still out for the management of mild hypertension, which is high blood pressure in pregnant women that don't meet the criteria of severe hypertension. There have been randomized trials in this field, however, they haven't really been powered to address this question, and they have yielded mixed results. And so is the concern that if you lower blood pressure too aggressively, you'll compromise fetal growth and development? Yeah, so the idea kind of goes back to that hypothesis with the placenta, whereby with decreased blood pressure, the idea is that there may be decreased placental perfusion, and which may lead to some complications to the fetus, including intrauterine growth restriction, preterm delivery, and even death. Okay, so how did these investigators examine this question? So what they did was they conducted an international multi-center trial, and it involved a pretty big number, so 987 women, and they were randomized to two groups, either less tight or tight control of mild to moderate non-proteinuric hypertension in pregnancy. Um, Specifically, the less tight group was defined as a diastolic target of 110, and the tight group was defined as a diastolic target of 85. Uh, In this particular cohort, around three-quarters of the patients had pre-existing high blood pressure, and about half of them were taking antihypertensive medications at the time of the study. Okay, and so uh, what did they find? So really interestingly, they found no significant difference between the two groups and the primary outcome, and that was looking at neonatal complications. They define that as a composite of either pregnancy loss or requirement of neonatal care, uh, NICU care, for more than 48 hours. Also, for their secondary outcome, which looked at maternal complications, including preeclampsia, again, no difference between the two groups. An interesting signal they did pick up, however, was that severe hypertension was significantly more common in the less tight control group. Sure, and severe hypertension being defined as greater than 160 over 110. Exactly. Okay, so but not necessarily any other clinical adverse outcomes, right? Just the blood pressure number was higher. Right, so expected complications from severe hypertension, such as stroke, such as preeclampsia or even eclampsia, none of these were significantly different between the two groups. However, we have to remember that the study wasn't powered necessarily to look at these particular outcomes. Okay, so how do we interpret these findings? So this study has actually caused uh, quite a stir in the obstetrical medicine world in that it really has led to two staunch camps um, that actually have become probably even more staunch since the study has come out. And that is that there's one school which thinks that it's important to have really tight control. The other group obviously thinks that it's important to have less tight control. What this study shows is that reassuringly, these two groups really don't have a difference in terms of severe clinical outcomes or complications in both the maternal and fetal groups. And so I guess it really leaves the debate up in the air in this this particular case. So it leaves you, it leaves the tribes to their, to their own devices, basically. Do what, do what you will. Having 
recently been a part of the obstetrical medicine team at Mount Sinai Hospital. I can say that the practice at that institution is certainly to interpret this as a reason to continue treating blood pressure to a lower target because of the expectation that that is going to be safer for mom without harming the baby and that that comes with all sorts of potential advantages which we may not have picked up in this study. Right, and I guess the other thing I took away from this particular study is kind of going back to that concept of shared decision-making, and that is involving the patients in the decision when the evidence really isn't so clear. So maybe for some patients, they might prefer not to take medication uh, if the evidence is really balanced, and some might actually prefer to take medication. So really involving the patients, that's something that I really took away from this. Yeah, absolutely. That's... uh... The one point I'll make, which is the physiologic comment, that the vasodilatory effects of pregnancy in general on maternal neurological circulation may make them more prone or more vulnerable to having strokes at blood pressures that otherwise aren't necessarily that dangerous in a general population if chronic. Right. As as a really simplistic thinking generalist, as I revert back to my medical school days, I think pregnancy changes everything. And that's why I always have to go back and review all that physiology. Perfect. Okay. So why don't we wrap up and why don't you tell us the major takeaway point from this study? So I guess the takeaway point from this study is that there is no difference in less tight versus tight control in the management of mild to moderate hypertension in pregnancy when looking at uh, maternal or fetal complications. All right. Let's move on to the TIPS study. So this study was recently published in The Lancet in October of 2014, and it showed that the use of prophylactic doses of low molecular weight heparin in pregnant women who have a history of thrombophilia does not improve pregnancy outcomes for mothers or babies. So Amal, tell me a bit more about the background of the study. So in the 1990s, some epidemiologic data emerged that linked people who have a predisposition to a blood clotting disorder with increased risk of poor pregnancy outcomes. And one of the theories behind this is that the predisposition to blood clotting increased the likelihood of the development of microthrombi and macrothrombi in the placenta, leading to placental insufficiency leading to poor pregnancy outcomes like preeclampsia. And the thought was that if you anticoagulate people, maybe you'll prevent some of this poor placentation and ameliorate your pregnancy outcomes. Increasingly, over the last 10 or 15 years, this sort of the pendulum has swung on this, where for a while there was a lot of low molecular weight heparin being used, and that was the time around when this study was initially planned, which was in 2000 is when they started enrolling patients. And then over the duration of this trial in the last 10-15 years, low molecular weight heparin has started falling out of favor in some centers, and this study confirms that shift effectively. So right away you mentioned that this study took Uh, around 15 years. Actually, it looks like 12 years to complete. Why was that? Is there a story behind that? Yeah, I mean, I wish I knew the the details of the story. The, The real obvious reason is that it was very difficult to recruit patients. For the first, I think, 26 months, they only recruited 12 patients. 
and they in fact had to change the design of the study from uh, double-blinded to an open-label study, I guess because they were having such difficulty recruiting patients. You can sort of see this as one of two things. One is that it it's such a difficult patient population to enroll and do randomized control trials in. And so this I really see as like a triumph of the perseverant trialists who for 12 years didn't let this go and continue to recruit women. So 292 women at 36 centers in five countries. Of those 36 centers, a bunch of them, like 10 or 15, didn't even recruit a single patient. One of the reasons that people were not being recruited is because in some centers, it became standard of care to actually use low molecular weight heparin. So they couldn't convince people to be part of the study so that they would not receive the therapy. And I think part of that speaks to how emotionally involved this kind of care is, right? And people who have had a history perhaps of recurrent pregnancy loss now trying to do everything they possibly can to preserve a current pregnancy. Right. It definitely tugs in the heartstrings. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really interesting story there about, you know, why it was so hard to recruit and and how they were able to really persevere through that and, and complete the study. So tell me a bit about how they conducted the study. Sure. So over their 12 years, they approached 470 women, 469 women to be precise, and uh, consented 292 patients to participate. They enrolled patients who had thrombophilia, and they had a very complex algorithm of who met these criteria, which I won't go to in detail, but people who had a predisposition to a clotting disorder and who did not have an absolute indication for anticoagulation. So for that category of people, they randomly assigned them to either receive daltaparin or no daltaparin during the pregnancy. The mean age of patients was about 31 years, and the mean gestational age at randomization was roughly 12 weeks. So what did they find? Yeah, so their primary outcome was to look at a combination of maternal and fetal outcomes. So they looked at uh, a composite outcome that included pregnancy loss, birth of a small for gestational age infant less than 10th percentile, severe or early onset of preeclampsia, and symptomatic venous thromboembolism. So that composite endpoint was their primary outcome. 17% of patients had the primary outcome in the daltaparin group as compared to 19% in the no daltaparin group, which was a not statistically significant difference. So effectively, they found no difference, and they found no between-group differences for any of the component outcomes of their major composite outcome. The only difference they found was some increased minor bleeding in the daltaparin group with no difference in major bleeding. So that's that's really interesting. What what do you think is the the kind of the take-home point of the study? So I think the take-home point here is that although there was a theory that low molecular weight heparin might improve placentation and pregnancy outcomes for people who are at high risk of developing pregnancy complications, that doesn't seem to have been borne out by the literature. So this very nice theory about microthrombi causing poor placentation and resulting in poor pregnancy outcomes, unfortunately, just doesn't seem to, to have been true, or at the very least, treating patients with prophylactic doses of anticoagulant doesn't seem to have ameliorated that problem. 
So being a randomized trial, obviously the study has some strengths. Um, were there any limitations at all? Yeah, I mean, so I think this trial has a number of strengths. So the first is the fact that it succeeded despite all of its challenges with patient recruitment. Um, having said that, you know, one of the limitations is that it was conducted over such a long period of time. So there may be some secular tr- time-specific effects in terms of how cultures and practices have changed in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. The other limitations are really the first is that there's a slightly lower event rate than they initially expected. So the study was powered around a predicted event rate of about 50% events in the control group, whereas in fact that was closer to 20%. Now, that event rate is in keeping with our most recent epidemiologic data. So it seems like this is actually a a, a reasonable reflection of actual practice. It's not some kind of aberrancy of this study. The other limitation, and this is an important one, potentially, is differential aspirin use between groups. So in the treatment group, in the deltaparin group, only about 30% of patients received aspirin, whereas in the no deltaparin group, 40% of patients received aspirin. And one of the things that we do know is that aspirin causes a modest reduction in preeclampsia. And so it's possible that that may have played some effect. Uh, But overall, it probably didn't significantly bias the results because aspirin has not had a dramatic effect on pregnancy outcomes apart from the preeclampsia picture. And so it's unlikely to have changed things like pregnancy loss uh, or symptomatic DVT, for example. So you mentioned aspirin in patients with preeclampsia. What is the role of aspirin in the management of these patients? Yeah, so there's a good body of evidence to suggest that low-dose aspirin daily in women who are at high risk of developing preeclampsia actually reduces the number of women who develop preeclampsia. There are a few important points. So one is who is high risk. These recommendations vary a little bit depending upon which country's guidelines you're adhering to, but generally it's patients who previously had preeclampsia. All patients who have hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, or proteinuria, and so that's a big patient population that is probably being undertreated with aspirin, and so if our little podcast here can play any role in knowledge translation, for all of you physicians out there who take care of reproductive age women with hypertension, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease think about putting them on aspirin around the time of their uh, early pregnancy. Aspirin or the generic type, since the study isn't sponsored by any drug company. Yes, thank you, Janice. ASA, let's say. So um, the other key point about the treatment with ASA is that it should be started early in the pregnancy. Uh, The Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada recommends starting it before 16 weeks. Uh, and so that's that's the main takeaway point, is that low molecular weight heparin does not seem to be beneficial in preventing adverse pregnancy outcomes. But if there's one thing to take away from this, uh, aspirin is. Why do they think that aspirin works in these particular patients? Yeah, that's a sort of perfect question, I think, for us to wrap up our little conversation here about maybe preeclampsia, and we can tie this back to the CHIP study. So the current leading understanding of preeclampsia is that it's really a disease of endothelial dysfunction that probably starts in the placenta, but has multi-organ system effects. Uh, And so why 
aspirin helps is that it probably has some action on improving placentation and placental development um, uh, and by acting on the endothelium. Uh, I hope that's vague enough for you. Uh, but I think that speaks to potentially why the CHIPS trial suggests that tight control of blood pressure doesn't necessarily improve pregnancy outcomes, which is that preeclampsia is really a disease that is multi-organ system, and the blood pressure is one systemic manifestation of that disease, but that treating the blood pressure doesn't necessarily change your pregnancy outcome. It's like treating a symptom rather than treating the underlying problem. I think that's a really important point to make because oftentimes, again, reverting back to the medical school days, um, we're often taught that you know preeclampsia equals hypertension, but proteinuria plus proteinuria. But obviously, it's a lot more complex than that, involving different systems, and that's something that we really need to take into consideration. Yeah, one thing that the obstetrical medicine staff, who I work with a lot uh, right now, uh, says frequently is uh, that she thinks of preeclampsia as almost like sepsis, which is that it's a cascade of events that causes multi-organ dysfunction. Uh, and although it starts somewhere, it then has system-wide effects. Um, and and uh, really, it's about supporting patients through all of that. Uh, and at this point, you know, our treatments are really directed to, towards supportive care, uh, with the exception of aspirin, which may have some preventative role. Supportive care and uh, eventually delivery as well. Yeah, of course. So to wrap up, I'll just summarize and say that the TIPS trial showed that prophylactic doses of low molecular weight heparin in pregnant women with thrombophilia is not associated with improved pregnancy outcomes. And I think this really closes the book on the low molecular weight heparin in thrombophilic patients school of thought, and that we really need to be looking elsewhere for better interventions to improve pregnancy outcomes in these high-risk patients. Okay, Janice, why don't we move on to our Good Stuff segment. So what caught your attention in the world of medicine this week? What caught my attention was an op-ed in the New York Times by Oliver Sacks, who, as many of you know, is a renowned neurologist as well as an author. Um, some of his most famous books include Awakenings. And Dr. Sachs wrote uh, an op-ed called My Own Life. And in it, he talks about the lessons that he's learned since having the terminal diagnosis of metastatic melanoma. And it's just really a poignant piece. It's really well-written, and it touches the heart. Um, he talks about accepting his diagnosis, being angry by it, accepting that he's angry, and then going into how he uh, is excited to, to cherish the last few moments that he has in his life. And I would really recommend it to any clinician, and especially those involved in end-of-life care. I guess somewhat fittingly, we're, we're, we happen to be in sync this episode. So my recommendation is about Dr. John Evans. John Evans recently died and I suggest that you read his obituary, which is beautifully written in the Toronto Star. Dr. Evans was one of Canada's leading physicians, educators, and businessmen. He helped found the medical school at McMaster University and its revolutionary model of medical education. So all of you problem-based learners out there can offer your thanks to John Evans. He was the president of the University of Toronto. He set up the World Bank's Population Health and Nutrition Branch. 
He became the first Canadian chairman of the Rockefeller Foundation. He was the chairman of a number of companies, including the Toronto Star parent company. So if that's not impressive enough, Janice, John Evans and his wife Gay raised six kids, including twin sons who happened to win Olympic gold medals in rowing. So I don't know about you, but this is both remarkably humbling and inspiring to hear about uh, this really great Canadian and, and his life obviously very well lived. And on that uplifting note, let's uh, call it a close for today. And I hope we can do this again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Emil. 